You are now sitting in the British Combined Operations Headquarters as Lord Montbat, flanked by officers from British Naval Intelligence, the Secret Intelligence Service, the Royal Navy's Operational Intelligence Center, and the Air Ministry's Intelligence Branch, prepares to outline the crucial situation in the North Atlantic in March of 1942. Standing in front of you is Lord Montbat. The mood in the room is tense. He is holding a pointer, and beside him stands an A-frame chart display with an oversized map visible to yourself and the other ten commando leaders in the room, none of whom are familiar to you. You do not know the purpose of this meeting, except that your orders to attend it were classified. He begins by pointing to a map of the Atlantic Ocean, which is literally filled with multicolored round dots, each one representing a ship. Gentlemen, he begins. This is the current situation in the Atlantic. These blue dots carrying American and British flags represent merchant ships, of which there are hundreds, as you can see, mostly from the United States and Canada, carrying planes, munitions, food, and supplies, which we need if we are going to survive to continue fighting Germany. Our people are starving and cannot live on rations for long. These swastika-marked dots, and as you can see, there are just as many, represent German submarines, the greatest threat to this shipping. We do not have enough sea power to protect all these merchant ships. And now, with Germany in control of most of France, it gives them a huge port advantage in the North Atlantic. With access to French ports, German U-boats are being built and launched at a rate of 20 U-boats per month. But U-boats are only part of the problem. We managed to sink the Bismarck in May, the largest battleship ever known and the greatest threat to our Navy. But there is a second, larger, faster, and even more powerful German ship coming, which is now operational. If the Turpins is allowed to enter the Atlantic, it could very easily decide the Battle of the Atlantic permanently in favor of the Germans. Prime Minister Churchill has asked us to come up with a plan to put the Turpins out of business. It's not a request. He believes that the presence of the Turpins in open waters is the biggest threat we have ever faced. There are a number of challenges here. With her speed, she'll be able to dodge torpedoes very effectively. With her guns, she can sink anything within her range. Her armor cannot be penetrated by anything we currently have. As soon as she breaks through our blockade, and we expect she will do so easily, she will become a lethal wolf attacking every ship in the Atlantic. Our country is in dire need of supplies from the West. We have survived the Battle of Britain, but we cannot survive the battle for control of our seas if the Turpins is allowed access to the North Atlantic. At this point, Montbatten pauses to reveal a second map showing the coast of France and the port of Saint-Nazaire. When the Turpins ventures out into the Atlantic Ocean, and if she was to suffer any damage at all, which she will sooner or later, she cannot repair herself. She will eventually need to seek refuge in the only port that can take her, Saint-Nazaire, right here on the coast of France. The Germans know this. We know this. And if we can take out this port, specifically this dock, the Turpins cannot risk the open waters of the Atlantic 
she'll have to stay in Norway, protecting the Arctic convoy routes. That, gentlemen, is her Achilles heel and our salvation. Our challenges here are many. This Normandy dock that you're looking at has a huge strategic importance as a sub-base and extra-large repair dry dock to the Germans. The port lies five miles up this river estuary, the River Loire, which is full of sandbars and submarine nets and mines and protected all the way by German gun emplacements. There are 5,000 German Wehrmacht troops stationed at Saint-Nazaire. The 280th German Naval Artillery Battalion has 28 large guns placed strategically along the river that we know of. These guns range from 75mm to 280mm railway guns. Enough firepower to blow anything we've got out of the water before we get within four miles of the port. These guns are supplemented by a naval flak brigade which provides searchlights and hundreds of lighter guns all along this river and inside the port. This brigade also mans 43, yes, 43, 20 to 40 millimeter anti-aircraft guns, making any torpedo or bombing raid not only extremely costly in terms of men and materials, but highly improbable that we could hit one huge steel gate and the wheelhouses that comprise this dock and which are our ultimate target. Our bombing accuracy is improving, but not quickly enough. And, to complicate the situation, there are 50,000 civilians here. So any bombing we do will be minimal and exact. Now to the river. The harbor defense companies are responsible for the subs and ships moored in the harbor here. The Kriegsmarine has three surface ships in the Loire estuary that we know of. A destroyer, an armed trawler, and a force of 10 minesweepers, as well as a flotilla of harbor defense boats. The minesweepers have planted the river with mines. By land, any paratrooper attack would be suicide. So it appears there is no way in and no way out. That does not appear to be suicidal. But that's nothing new in this war, is it? The room has gone silent. Montbatten reaches for a glass of water on a nearby desktop. Then he puts down his glass of water, which, in the now deadly silent confines of the room, makes a sound like a gunshot on the glass top table. You and the men beside you nervously await his next words, eyes fixed on the chart as he flips the page. Gentlemen, the good news is we do have a plan, and it's called Operation Chariot. The dock at Saint-Nazaire can and will be destroyed. This will all take place one month from today. What happens beyond that is in the hands of Providence.
In January of 1942, combined British intelligence knew that March would provide the River Loire estuary an unusually high spring tide, which would allow a shallow bottom vessel clear passage to approach the port of Saint-Nazaire over the sandbanks that dotted the Loire estuary, rather than through the dredged and protected shipping channel. The current type of landing ships, converted cross-channel ferries, were unsuitable, so whatever ship was used had to be light enough to make it through the estuary, but be sturdy enough to carry a large amount of explosives. There was thus a slim chance that such an operation against the Normandy dock could be mounted, and with this spark of hope, the planners at Combined Operations started on a draft. By the 31st of January, 1942, they had drafted an initial scheme that, while having many uncertainties, could act as an initial framework to build the outline of an operation that was crucial to the war effort. The first draft called for two obsolete destroyers that would be specially lightened. The first would be packed with explosives and carry a large team of commandos trained in demolitions. It would ram the outer gate of the dry dock, and the commandos would disembark and destroy as much of the surrounding facilities as they could. The destroyer would then blow up using time-delay fuses, and the commandos would evacuate on the second destroyer, which would act as an escort on the way in. The RAF would carry out a number of air raids on the surrounding area while this was going on, to divert the enemy's attention. When the plan was presented to the Admiralty, they voted it down, as they could not agree to the certain loss of one of their destroyers and the possible loss of a second, even though the Normandy dock was a major target of their own choosing. What they did agree to was the use of the old free French ship Orangan as the ramming ship and a flotilla of motor launches and torpedo boats to carry the additional commandos in and to evacuate all the personnel out after the operation. While not perfect, it was now possible to put the operation to the Joint Chiefs of Staff for approval. The enthusiasm of the RAF was also wanting, as they did not relish being given targets that they did not pick, and the numbers of bombers eventually allotted to the operation fell well short of what was needed. Churchill himself had some misgivings about the operation regarding civilian casualties, but approval was eventually given on March 3rd and the undertaking codenamed Operation Chariot. The Joint Chiefs were not happy about using a French ship, however. This would require that French troops be used in the raid, and that would mean approaching the leader of the Free French, General Charles de Gaulle. This would inevitably widen the number of people with knowledge of the operation, and increased the risk of details leaking out. It was decided that it would be easier to find a suitable ship from within the Royal Navy, rather than risk a breach in security. Operation Chariot was organized under the direction of Combined Operations, which was an inter-service organization formed with the specific task of harrying the Axis powers. It did, however, have a force of Army commandos with which to conduct offensive operations. The commandos were formed just after the fall of France, and consisted of teams of hand-picked, highly trained men, who, by 1942, had been organized into a special service brigade of 12 individual veteran commandos under the command of Brigadier Charles Hayden. Each commando had around 500 personnel, about the size of a small battalion, from most of the corps and regiments of the British Army. Lieutenant Colonel Charles Newman, head of No. 2 Commando, 
was chosen to lead ground forces in the operation. Newman was a building contractor by profession and had been in the Territorial Army before the war in the Essex Regiment. At 38, he was the senior of his subordinates, but his leadership ability and the way he could relate to his men meant that he was popular and well-respected. Given that Newman was its commanding officer, it was natural that the majority of the troops involved would come from Number 2 Commando, but many officers and men were drawn from other units to give them battle experience. The commandos underwent intensive training in the techniques of street fighting at night under Number 2 Commando's second-in-command, Major Bill Copeland, and they would be responsible for providing protection squads for the demolition teams, as well as secure and hold positions vital to the outcome of the raid and keep enemy forces at bay long enough for the demolition teams to do their work. All the soldiers that were to take part in the raid had broad experience in raiding techniques, but the St. Nazaire raid would require the acquisition of demolition skills specifically tailored to the targets that awaited the force. In this regard, Combined Operations was able to locate Captain W.H. Bill Pritchard of the Royal Engineers, who was highly qualified as he had seen action in France that had included blowing bridges behind the retreating British Expeditionary Forces. His expertise had been put to good use as he had been asked to look at a number of ports and methods by which they might be made unusable to the enemy. One of those was St. Nazaire. He had concluded that aerial bombardment would not destroy the machinery required to put the dock out of action. That would only be accomplished by the precise placement of charges, and the actual locations and methods were outlined in the report. Another sapper, Captain Bob Montgomery, who also had wealth of knowledge on the subject, had assisted in the production of the report, and both officers were now tasked with helping Newman. The demolition training was led by Captain Bill Pritchard, in the Royal Engineers, and carried out in Cardiff, Wales, and Southampton docks after learning as much as possible about locks, pumps, cranes, electrical equipment, and power stations. The demolition teams were drawn from 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, and 12 commando, and were sent to Burntisland on the Firth of Forth to undertake specialized training in the destruction of dockyard installations. The teams were trained in the use of explosive charges and taught to identify the precise location of where to place the charges to gain maximum benefit. After a week, the group swapped around so the teams could gain the widest experience possible to cope with unforeseen events. The Royal Naval Contingent was led by Commander Robert Ryder, who, even at the age of 34, had a great deal of seagoing experience, having served three years in submarines having also commanded a schooner for three years, during which it had sailed to the Arctic. He had commanded the frigate HMS Fleetwood for six months and had a Q-ship torpedoed out from under him and spent four days clinging to a wooden chock. At the time, he had been assigned to a desk job in a stately home in southern England, having lost his last ship in a collision in thick fog. His task was to organize four and ultimately implement the plan to land 200 commandos in San Nazaire, get an aging destroyer to the port, and make sure it rammed the southern caisson of the dry dock and withdraw the survivors back to Britain. Just another day's work. By late March, with planning for the operation well underway, a destroyer had still yet to be found by the Admiralty, who offered a large submarine as a replacement. This, due to the presence of German submarine nets in the Loire, was impossible. Just as it looked as if the raid would have to be cancelled for lack of a ship, the Admiralty relented and provided the old destroyer, HMS Campbelltown, 
to be used as the ramming ship. The ship had in fact started life as a destroyer in the United States Navy, named USS Buchanan, and was of World War I vintage, having been launched in 1919. She had spent most of her life in reserve and was transferred to the Royal Navy along with some 50 other obsolescent destroyers under the Lend-Lease Agreement. Under this agreement, Britain allowed the Americans to lease a number of naval bases worldwide in return for the loan of a number of badly needed ships. On the 10th of March, 1942, she appeared in Devonport for her final and most important refit to take part in Operation Chariot and almost certain destruction. To help cause confusion and delay the German response, Campbelltown was altered to resemble a German destroyer of the Mo class. This required the removal of two of her four smokestacks and the modification of the other two that included cutting them at an oblique angle and enlarging the forward one to almost twice its original size, while the rear stack was shortened slightly. To give some extra protection to the crew, extra steel plates and splinter mats were welded to certain areas of the ship, and two parallel rows of plating were welded along the decks to give some shelter to the commandos as they lay in the open on the final run into the port. Her armament was also beefed up with the original 4-inch guns being replaced by a rapid-firing 12-pounder and eight 20mm Mark I Orlikon cannons being added on elevated platforms. All unnecessary equipment and stores were stripped away from her to make her as light as possible, and when she left for San Nazaire, she had just enough fuel and water to make the trip. Campbelltown drew just 11 feet of water on this journey but there was one vital addition to her in the forward compartments, a massive charge with four and a quarter tons of high explosive. The explosive punch was organized by Lieutenant Nigel Tibbetts, who decided to use 24 Mark VII depth charges, each weighing 400 pounds. The charges were grouped together in a steel tank and then covered in concrete. Long delay pencil fuses were inserted, connected by cord techs, a fuse that detonates instantaneously, and primed to explode after an eight-hour delay. The remainder of the naval force was made up of smaller craft that came in three types. Most were Fairmile B motor launches, armed in a variety of ways, with some even having torpedoes. But they were wooden, the obvious disadvantage being that they were sitting ducks for German gun emplacements defending the river, and any men on board had no protection from bullets or cannon fire. With the selection of the vessels that were to carry the raiding force and the completion of the commando's training, the whole force was gathered together in Falmouth in mid-March, a cover story that the craft were being organized into the 10th Anti-Submarine Striking Force to conduct long-range anti-submarine sweeps in the Bay of Biscay was created to preempt idle gossip in the town and amongst other service personnel stationed in the area. The commandos who had arrived on the converted Belgian cross-channel ferry Princess Josephine Charlotte were now introduced to the small craft and given the chance to find their sea legs. They were taken on a long cruise around the Skilly Isles and almost to a man were seasick. The training continued for two weeks and ended with a minor exercise where the commandos carried out a night assault on the dockyard at Plymouth. They were easily discovered by the defenses and ended in shambles one problem being the ship's crews being blinded by searchlights. A bad omen, to say the least. Late in the afternoon of March 25th, 
the Campbelltown arrived in port and caused a stir among veterans as they noticed its new German silhouette. The ship had a new master, the previous captain being considered too old for the raid, and was replaced by Lieutenant Commander Stephen Beatty. This suited the Naval Mission Commander Ryder as well as Beatty, as each knew each other from way back when they were both cadets on the training ship HMS Thunderer. After everyone had arrived, a formal briefing was conducted in which everyone learned in detail of what the target was and what he or she would be required to do. It was obvious that from the odds they faced, many in the raiding party would not be returning. An opportunity was given for any who wished to remain behind could do so without any recrimination or loss of honor. But none came forward to drop out. The objectives of the raid, in order of priority, were thus. Firstly, the two huge steel gates of the Normandy dockyard had to be destroyed. Secondly, the dockyard facilities surrounding the dockyard had to be demolished. Third, the destruction of all the lock gates was required to cause the basin to become tidal. And fourth, to attack any shipping that presented itself as a target of opportunity. The plan of attack would unfold this way. The main charge to blow up the southern gate of the dock would be carried by Campbelltown right up to the gate itself. After ramming the caisson, the commandos would then land and set about destroying the local defenses, dockyard facilities, including the pump house, and the two winding sheds, as well as the northern caisson. The remainder of the commandos would then land at the old mole dock and old entrance and attack the local defenses, bridges, locks, and equipment, and hopefully seal off the area around the old mole pier to form an orderly evacuation area. Additionally, MTB-74 would torpedo the outer lock at the northern entrance of the submarine basin to help render the basin tidal. The journey to San Nazaire would be made in the company of the two destroyers, Tinsdale and Atherstone, and would be made in a sub-hunting formation to keep the cover story going when near to home base and to fool enemy spotter aircraft when in the Bay of Biscay. Near the entrance of the Loire, the two destroyers would leave the flotilla and the force would adopt battle formation. All this occurring at night during the early morning hours. MGB-314, with its radar and echo sounder, would be in the lead, guiding the force across the mudflats and shallows. On either side of the gunboat would be the mortar torpedo boats ML-160 and ML-270 that would fire their torpedoes at any vessel interfering with the force. An air raid would take place simultaneously to confuse the German defenders and create havoc. After that would be Campbelltown with two columns of motor launches on either side and to the rear, the port column landing its commandos at the old mole dock, while the starboard column would head for the old entrance. Two more motor torpedo boats, ML-446 and ML-298, would cover the rear, and MTB-74, with its erratic momentum, would try and keep station, waiting for an opportunity to torpedo the lock in the old entrance. After landing the troops, the craft would wait in the river until the demolition tasks had been completed as far as possible, and re-embarkation of the commandos would take place from the old mole dock. The crew of Campbelltown would be picked up from around the old entrance after they had evacuated the ship. The four torpedo-carrying launches, 160, 170, 298, and 446, would provide additional capacity for embarking troops once the commandos were embarking. The operation had been scheduled to take place on the night of the 28th, 29th of March, the night of the highest tides in the Loire. But Ryder felt that the force was ready to go and not wanting to lose the good weather, 
decided to go a day early. The small force, therefore, set out on the afternoon of March 26th. Just one day before the raid, German Admiral Donitz, flag officer, U-boats, visited San Nazaire and asked Capitan Lieutenant Herbert Soler, who commanded the 7th Submarine Flotilla, what he would do if the British landed in the port. It would be out of the question for the English to enter the harbor, replied Soler. Little did he know that at that moment the British force was in the Bay of Biscay and headed in the direction of Saint-Nazaire. The voyage to Saint-Nazaire took the flotilla across the mouth of the English Channel, round the Brittany Peninsula, and into the Bay of Biscay. Once clear of British waters, it was likely that German U-boats, aircraft, or surface vessels would spot the force, and so it adopted an anti-submarine formation as a cover for their activity. The course set would take them well clear of the French coast initially, and it was hoped that the Germans would assume the force was headed for Gibraltar. Even in their approach to Saint-Nazaire, the force would angle inwards from the south after first heading towards La Rochelle, and so disguise their true target until the last possible moment. March 27th dawned bright and clear, much to Ryder's annoyance. By 0700, the force was some 160 miles southwest of Saint-Nazaire when they spotted a submarine, which turned out to be the German U-boat U-593, that had in fact been heading back to Saint-Nazaire after completing its first patrol. The destroyer closed the distance and fired off a salvo, which came close to hitting several times. The U-593 crash-dived and attempted to escape. The destroyer then launched a pattern of depth charges that forced the submarine to the surface again, after which it almost immediately crash-dived again after Tyndale had almost hit her with another salvo. Atherstone joined the chase, and for the next two hours the two ships hunted for the submarine. Nothing more was heard, and so Ryder decided to break off and continue towards Saint-Nazaire, hoping that the U-boat had been sunk. But it hadn't and U-593 surfaced at around 1420 and snapped off a quick radio message about the encounter with three destroyers and ten MTBs heading west. The composition of the group and its direction led the German command to believe that the force was on a mine-laying operation or on their way to Gibraltar. Soon after the encounter with U-593, the force ran into a fleet of French fishing trawlers. It was believed that the Germans often put observers aboard these vessels with radios to report on any British movements, and Ryder had decided to sink any such vessels that they came across, but the number of vessels made it impossible to sink them all, so Ryder decided just to sink two of them after taking their crews off. The French fishermen assured him that there were no German observers aboard any of the vessels. As the day wore on, the weather gradually worsened and the sky became gray and overcast. Just after midday, the force was told that reconnaissance photos had picked up five German destroyers leaving Saint-Nazaire, and who might be encountered on the run into the port. As it turned out, the encounter with the sub turned out to be a good fortune, as the destroyers had put to sea before the forces arrived and were patrolling the submarine lanes near the coast in response to U-593's message about a possible mine lane operation. So, five less destroyers to deal with in the port. A piece of luck. The force then continued towards the French coast and with two more gradual changes in course came into line with Saint-Nazaire. From here the force would move directly toward the port and just after 20 
the two escorting destroyers parted company with the raiders to set up a standing patrol. MGB-314 was cast off from Tyndale to advance under its own power, whereupon Commander Ryder and Lieutenant Colonel Newman boarded the boat, which became their headquarters. The Force OF assumed battle formation and sped up to 12 knots for the run into the port. There was one more rendezvous to make before Saint-Nazaire, however. The British submarine HMS Sturgeon, under Lieutenant Commander Mervyn Wingfield, was waiting for the force at Point Z to act as a navigational beacon as the run into Saint-Nazaire had to be carried out along a precise course over mudflats and sandbanks. At 2200, 10 p.m., Sturgeon's light was spotted straight ahead. The force was exactly on time and on course. The final run into their own valley of death could now begin. Just before midnight, the RAF began their raid on the port as part of the diversion for Operation Chariot, but could not press home their attack for fear of causing French civilian casualties due to the target being obstructed by low clouds. There were 50,000 civilians living in or near the town and port of Saint-Nazaire, which was far too risky for a blind drop. They therefore decided to circle and hoped that their presence would keep the defenders looking skyward. By this time, Lieutenant Tibbets had already set and activated the pencil fuses deep inside the Campbelltown, which would detonate the huge explosive charge, 9,600 pounds of explosives, some 10 hours later, hopefully. These fuses were not altogether completely accurate, and a margin of error had to be taken into account, but it was expected that somewhere between 0500 and 0900, the explosives would detonate. The small force made its way past the radar station at La Crosic, without incident, and entered the mouth of the River Loire, where shortly after midnight, it passed the ghostly wreck of the Lancastria. The Lancastria had been sunk June 17th, 1940, while evacuating the last troops of the British Expeditionary Forces from France two weeks after Dunkirk, and with some 4,500 people missing, the scene of the greatest loss of life in Britain's maritime history. The few men who were on deck watched silently, knowing the story of the Lancastria, and no doubt wondering what fate was holding in store for them. Fifteen minutes later, the force passed the 75mm guns on the Point de Gildas, still unobserved. On board the Campbelltown and 16 wooden boats were 264 commandos and 357 naval personnel. Ahead, the bombing was becoming sporadic, with often a few or even a single plane making bombing runs. German Kapitän Zur Siemek had started to become suspicious the bombing raid was just not developing as it normally should, with hordes of bombers dropping tons of high explosives, but a few planes here and there releasing their ordnance. He alerted all units to be on their guard and followed this up again at midnight and again at 0100 with warnings to be alert for either parachute landings or an attack from the sea. He also ordered the AA guns to seize fire and searchlights to be extinguished. Meanwhile, the raiding force was getting closer and closer to the port passing over the mudflats and sandbags that twice caused the Campbelltown to lightly ground but did not affect forward momentum. At 0120, they slipped past the Le Moraes Tower when a searchlight pierced the blackness behind them and swept the river, then just as suddenly going out. In fact, the force had been spotted a few minutes earlier by a lookout at St. Mark who contacted the harbor commander's headquarters reporting 
that a force of some 17 vessels was headed up the channel. The sighting was dismissed out of hand, as no vessels were expected. The sighting was passed into MEC's headquarters, and the staff there contacted the harbor commander's headquarters as well, receiving the same reply. After all this had occurred, MEC himself was told of the sighting, and at 0120 signaled all units in the San Nazaire area to beware of a landing. This set in motion plans to counter an enemy landing that had enemy troops, ships' crews, harbor defense vessels, shore defenses, and reinforcements moving to thwart just such an attack. As the force moved ever closer to the target, searchlights on both banks of the river came to life and started to probe the dark waters for the vessels. They quickly locked onto the gray destroyer, and at first sight, the Campbelltown resembled one of the huge Mo-class destroyers with a German flag fluttering on her mast. This caused some confusion and delay in the German gunner's reactions, despite the force having come out of the night unexpectedly. What should they do? A couple of gun crews fired some light cannon shells low over the force as a warning, and the ships were challenged by signal stations on both banks. Leading signalman Pike was prepared for this and quickly replied to the challenge with a wait, followed by the call sign of a torpedo boat known to the raiders. This was followed by a signal prefixed urgent and a message, two craft damaged by enemy action, request permission to proceed to harbor without delay. The Germans stopped firing, confused as to what to do. After something of a delay, the Germans started firing again, hesitantly at first, but with the heavier guns on the north, gradually joining in with the Dickman's batteries at Schemelin Point and Point de Lave. Pike started signaling again, you are firing on friendly ships. Again, the firing stopped in confusion, no doubt encouraged by the fact that the British had not so far fired back. By now, the Campbelltown was entering the mouth of the River Loire itself and leaving the heavier guns behind her. The Germans were now certain that the ships were hostile, and Mech and Diekmann ordered every gun they had to open fire. The bluff had worked better than anybody could have imagined in getting them this far. The force was almost at the target, but the game was now up. Ryder ordered all vessels to return fire, and the river was instantly crisscrossed with tracer and cannon fire, while the Campbelltown lowered the German flag and raised the white ensign, followed by the little ships. The fire from the coastal defense guns landed among the flotilla and started to cause casualties, but with less than five minutes to go, it was a case of streaming ahead at full speed with all guns blazing. At the head of the force, MGB-316 had breached the outer harbor, and the German guard ship, Sparebreacher, moored next to the East Jetty. The ship was pouring a large volume of fire into the force as it approached, and so MGB-314 turned all its guns at the ship and raked her from bow to stern as she passed. The ship then fell silent, and several other ships added to the damage inflicted by MGB-314 as they passed by. The Germans were singling out Campbelltown more and more as her size gave her an obvious importance. But with the heavier guns being left behind, it was only the smaller caliber shells that were hitting her as time went on. Still, damage was being done to her superstructure and decks, while some shells penetrated inside the ship and small fires broke out along her. The commandos waited behind the specially installed plates of metal for the moment the Campbelltown rammed the caisson and they could make their way onto the dock and fight back. At this point, Commander Beatty ordered the men gathered on the open bridge into the covered wheelhouse as he felt it was becoming too hot. The sides of the wheelhouse were plated 
and so gave some protection from smaller caliber weapons, except for a slit in the front to give forward visibility. He planned to go to full speed and hit the caisson at 20 knots, as a searchlight dead ahead was impairing his vision. Bullets were ringing and ricocheting off the metal wheelhouse sides, and everywhere else for that matter. The helmsman next to him fell dead, and the quartermaster leapt to the wheel, falling back as he was hit numerous times. Demolitions expert Lieutenant Bob Montgomery was the next to take the wheel, but only for seconds when he was relieved by Tibbets, the brilliant Dartmouth grad who had been instrumental in planting the explosives, now positioned below decks, hidden from sight, saying, I'll take it, old man, as he stepped forward to guide the ship toward what he hoped was the dock. With searchlights glaring in his face, speeding at 22 knots in the darkness, and the sound of machine gun and cannon fire hitting all around them. Tibbets had a clear moment of vision and realized with a jolt that he was steering the ship to an opening a few hundred yards short of their target. He threw the wheel over hard right and the old destroyer responded, just grazing the jetty. Then upon seeing the correct entrance to the target dock, went hard left again and miraculously, the ship righted and sped toward the caisson gate. Beatty announced, stand by to ramp. Searchlights blazed all around the Campbelltown as it pressed on through a hail of gunfire. The commandos below deck saw a red-hot cannon projectile pass through their reinforced area, in through one side and out through the other, over their heads, in the last minute before the ship ran the gate. At the outer harbor, a German guard ship began pumping munitions at the passing flotilla when MGB 314 with Commanders Ryder and Newman aboard, flashed by, cutting loose with their deck guns at near point-blank range, silencing the German ship. Commando Lieutenant John Roderick, aboard Campbelltown, remembered, the run-in was desperately exciting, the suspense over the haggling about who or what we were, the opening fire from the banks, the silence, and then the final opening up of the guns. I was filled with admiration for the Campbelltown's gun crews who suffered severe casualties. Lying behind them, we were not entirely inactive as our Bren guns were fitted for this phase with large pans of ammunition which we fired at as many targets as we could make out. Lieutenant Arkel on ML-177 added, there were tracer bullets going in every direction, a very colorful sight because the British tracers were all orange in color and the Germans were all blue-green. Anyway, this went on for some time and then the destroyer started heading for the gates, but the port line of motor launches started turning in toward their spot, which was mainly Old Mole on the dockside, and they started to get into some serious fire, and fire broke out on board several of them, unfortunately. HMS Campbelltown, with Baden and Tibbets, the only two left standing in the wheelhouse, had hit the lock gate at about 20 knots, causing the forward compartments to crumple so that the four tons of explosive rested right up against the caisson. In fact, they could not have been better placed if they'd been moved there by hand, which was a testament to the great seamanship of her crew. By the time the force had been identified as the enemy, the Campbelltown and the leading motor launches had been well along the Loire and passed the majority of the heavy guns. Not so the remainder of the motor launches who suffered the combined attention of the German defenses. Despite this, they made their way as quickly as they could to their designated landing places to drop the commandos off. The first motor launch in the starboard line heading for the old entrance 
was Lieutenant Commander Stevens' ML-192, which was hit by a large shell even before the Campbelltown had rammed the caisson. The engine room was damaged, and she drifted out of control, striking the wall next to the east jetty. Stevens realized that the craft was doomed and gave the order to abandon ship. The wounded were put into rafts as the high walls made disembarkation impossible, but Captain Michael Mickey Byrne, head of the assault force on the boat, managed to make his way ashore and move to their original objective, some flak towers, but these were found to be empty. The second craft, ML-262, belonged to Lieutenant Burt and carried the demolition party commanded by Lieutenant Woodcock, who was to blow the bridge across the old entrance and the two adjacent locks. Both Lieutenant Burt and Lieutenant Barrett, ML-267, were momentarily confused by the searchlights and having to take avoiding action after Stevens's boat veered across their path and overshot their objective by several hundred yards, forcing them to come round again. The fourth craft, ML-268, under Lieutenant Tilly, saw the two craft before miss their targets but managed to steer the correct course to land. The boat, however, was hit by sustained and accurate fire from close range and was within seconds of fire, very shortly blowing up. Lieutenant Tilly and half his crew managed to get off, but all but two of the 18 commandos were killed. Lieutenant Fenton's boat, ML-156, was hit repeatedly before she got near her objective. A hit on the bridge wounded both Fenton and Captain Hooper of the commandos. Fenton managed to stay in command of the vessel, but had to take evasive action as it approached the old entrance. The craft overshot and came round again in a wide circle, but by now Fenton's wounds were too severe and he handed over command to Sub-Lieutenant Mashin. He too was wounded and the craft sustained more damage. With all three officers in a bad way, having one effective engine and its steering gear damaged, the boat withdrew downstream. The last boat in the line, however, ML-177 under Lieutenant Rodier, achieved some success by managing to land its party of commandos under Sergeant Major Haynes on the southern side of the old entrance, who then made to join up with Captain Hooper and his men and eliminate the guns between the old entrance and the old mole, not knowing that they had failed to land. The command boat, MGB-314, now moved across the river and landed Lieutenant Colonel Newman and his headquarters at the northern steps of the old entrance. Ryder used his loud hailer to order Lieutenant Rodier to move to the stern of Campbelltown and take off the crew and wounded. At this point, the two launches that had overshot had come back round and once again tried to make a landing. The first was Lieutenant Burt's ML-262, who came into the old entrance and landed his party on the northern quay. Lieutenant Woodcock and his demolitions team, along with Lieutenant Morgan and his protection squad, scrambled ashore. About this time, the southern winding shed erupted in a huge explosion as Lieutenant Smalley and his men completed their work. Burt was just casting off when Lieutenant Morgan and his team came racing back, and so Burt came up alongside the quay once again and took them aboard. Lieutenant Morgan claimed that the return flare ordering the recall had been sighted, probably a multicolored tracer. Just as Bert was leaving, Lieutenant Smalley's party came back shouting to be taken off. Bert once again moved back to the quayside and took them off and headed for the open water. The craft was hit several times in short succession, causing casualties that included Lieutenant Smalley being killed. But the craft remained operable and so Bert headed downstream. Barrett's ML-267 came round next and tried to land the commandos without success. A few men got ashore, but were recalled almost immediately as the craft took a number of hits 
from sustained and accurate fire. The ship was set alight and the occupants abandoned as it drifted into the middle of the river. Many of those on board were killed while in the water, either due to machine gun fire, burning oil, or drowning. Finally, MTB-74 under Lieutenant Wynn entered the old entrance. It came up alongside Ryder in the MGB, but its torpedoes would no longer be needed for hitting the Normandy dock. Ryder needed them in case Campbelltown failed to scuttle properly. As soon as Campbelltown had hit the caisson and come to a halt, Beatty started to organize the evacuation of the crew and to scuttle the ship so that it rested squarely on the bed of the Loire so that it would be a formidable obstacle even if the explosive charges failed to detonate. The destroyer was now a stationary target at the mercy of the enemy guns that continued to pound her from every direction. The commandos left as soon as was possible to start their destructive tasks. Two assault teams, five demolition teams along with their protectors, and a mortar group. Three of the demolition teams had been tasked with destroying the dock pumping machinery and nearby installations. The kilt-wearing Captain Donald Roy, nicknamed the Laird, and his 14-man assault troop were charged with knocking out two pump house rooftop gun emplacements high above the quayside, as well as securing a bridge to provide an escape route. Roy and Sergeant Don Randall used scaling ladders and grenades to accomplish knocking out the gun emplacements and a head-on rush against a steady German resistance at the bridge. This cost the lives of four of their men. The fifth team accomplished their objective with half their men killed. The other commando groups, which were aboard the MLs, were not as successful, the boats being destroyed on their approach. Only ML 457 and 177 managed to land so far. ML 160 had run past the docks and ML 269 was spinning around the harbor, out of control. It was a wild, fiery, bullet-filled melee. Lieutenant Colonel Newman on the better-armed MGB was one of the first ashore, directing mortar fire onto a gun position located above the submarine pen that was causing heavy casualties. That being taken out, he directed mortar fire toward an armed trawler, which was forced then to withdraw upriver and put out of action. He then quickly organized the defense that kept the German reinforcements at bay until the pump houses could be blown, and only when that was accomplished he gathered the 100 or so remaining commandos and, realizing that escape by water was now impossible, issued three orders. One, to do their best to get back to England. Two, not to surrender until all their ammunition was exhausted. And three, not to surrender at all, if they could help it. Newman and Copeland then led the charge from the old town across a bridge, raked by machine gun fire, and advanced into the new town. These commandos attempted to get through the narrow streets and then into the countryside, but they were soon surrounded by Germans. Not all were captured. Five did make it out of town alive, and somehow found their way 350 miles to Spain, by which they finally made it back to England. The lightly armed MLs took a terrible beating from the Germans, and few men survived. Three were able to escape the Loire, but were hammered by German aircraft, which inflicted more casualties later on. In the harbor, it was now morning, and the Germans had killed, wounded, or captured all of the commandos that remained alive. By 10.30 a.m., the guardhouse holding the British prisoners was filling up rapidly. Dozens of Germans were searching the Campbelltown for souvenirs and could be seen climbing aboard the wrecked destroyer and leaving with items in their hands. 
Just before noon, a party of 40 senior German officers were seen boarding the ship. The commandos had expected the munitions to go off at 4.30 that morning, and now, nearly eight hours later, nothing had happened. Captain Sam Beatty, who, along with Engineer Tibbets, had steered the ship into and over the steel gates of the dry dock, through a hail of bullet and cannon fire, had been captured and was being interrogated by an English-speaking German officer who was telling him that it wouldn't take very long to repair the damage that the Campbelltown had caused, calling it a stupid effort. At that exact moment, the 4,500 pounds of explosives detonated, sending shrapnel and body parts hundreds of yards away. Upon which Beatty smiled at his captor, saying, I guess we're not so stupid after all. The day after the explosion, organization TOT workers were assigned to begin to clean up the debris and wreckage for the Germans. At 4.30 p.m., the torpedoes from MTB-74, one of the assault boats, which were on a delayed setting, exploded at the old entrance to the basin. This panicked the Germans and the dock workers, who began running away from the dock areas. German guards, mistaking their khaki uniforms for British uniforms, opened fire, killing some of them. In the town, the Germans searched house by house for commandos, catching some and killing some residents in the process. The explosion put the Normandy dry dock out of the war, but at a huge cost in lives. Of the 622 men of the Royal Navy and commandos, only 228 returned to England. 169 men were killed, 105 Royal Navy and 64 commandos, and another 215 became prisoners of war, 106 Royal Navy and 109 commandos. They were first taken to Laval and then sent to Stalag 133 at Rennes. The fallen British raiders were buried with honors at La Boule Escoblac Cemetery, 13 kilometers west of Saint-Nazaire. 89 decorations were awarded for the raid. This includes the five Victoria Crosses awarded to Lieutenant Commander Beatty, Lieutenant Colonel Newman, Commander Ryder, and posthumous awards to Sergeant Durant and Able Seaman Savage. Savage was 29 years old and an able seaman in the Royal Navy during the Second World War when the following deed took place for which he was awarded the VC. Able Seaman Savage's Victoria Cross Award read this way. On the 28th of March, 1942, in the attack on Saint-Nazaire, France, Abel Seaman Savage, who was a gun layer of a pom-pom in MGB 314, had gauged enemy positions ashore, shooting with great accuracy. Although he had no gun shield and was in the most exposed position, he continued firing with great coolness until at last he was killed at his gun. And this is the story of Sergeant Durant. During the raid, Sergeant Durant was in charge of a twin Lewis gun on board HM Motor Launch 306. As it came up the River Loire into the port of Saint-Nazaire, ML-306 came under heavy fire from the shore and was unable to land its troops at the Old Mole. And it was during its withdrawal that it came head-to-head with a pursuing German destroyer of the Mo class, the Jaguar. In the battle with the German destroyer, Durant was wounded numerous times in the head, both arms, legs, chest, and stomach. After the battle, Durant died of his wounds in a German military hospital in Saint-Nazaire. Following his death, he was buried in Le Boule Escoblac War Cemetery, seven miles from Saint-Nazaire in Plot 1, Row D, Grave 11. A week later, the commander of the German destroyer, 
Capitan Lieutenant F.K. Paul met the commando commander, Lieutenant Colonel Newman, in a prisoner of war camp in Rennes. Bringing the action to Newman's attention, Paul suggested that the colonel might wish to recommend Durant for a high award. His Victoria Cross citation reads, For great gallantry, skill, and devotion to duty, when in charge of a Lewis gun in HM Motor Launch 306 in the San Nazaire Raid, 28th of March, 1942. Motor Launch 306 came under heavy fire while proceeding up the River Loire towards the port. Sergeant Durant, in his position abaft the bridge, where he had no cover or protection, engaged enemy gun positions and searchlights ashore. During this engagement, he was severely wounded in the arm, but refused to leave his gun. The motor launch subsequently went down the river and was attacked by a German destroyer at 50 to 60 yards range, and often closer. In this action, Sergeant Durant continued to fire at the destroyer's bridge with the greatest of coolness and with complete disregard of the enemy fire. The motor launch was illuminated by the enemy searchlight, and Sergeant Durant drew on himself the individual attention of the enemy guns and was again wounded in many places. Despite these further wounds, he stayed in his exposed position, still firing his gun, although after a time, only able to support himself by holding on to the gun mounting. After a running fight, the commander of the German destroyer called on motor launch to surrender. Sergeant Durant's answer was a further burst of fire at the destroyer's bridge. Although now very weak, he went on firing, using drums of ammunition as fast as they could be replaced. A renewed attack by the enemy vessel eventually silenced the fire of the motor launch, but Sergeant Durant refused to give up until the destroyer came alongside, grappled the motor launch, and took prisoner those who remained alive. Sergeant Durant's gallant fight was commended by the German officers on boarding the motor launch. This very gallant non-commissioned officer later died of the many wounds received in action. Four distinguished service orders were awarded to Major William Copeland, Captain Donald Roy, Lieutenant T. Boyd, and Lieutenant T.D.L. Platt. Adolf Hitler was furious that the British had been able to sail a flotilla of ships up the Loire unhindered and called for the construction of 15,000 new bunkers by May of 1943 to defend the Atlantic coast. He also ordered that any future commandos captured in raids be sentenced to immediate death. The battleship Tirpitz never entered the Atlantic. She remained in Norwegian fjords to threaten Allied shipping until she was destroyed by the RAF on the 12th of November in 1944. A memorial stone, the only memorial erected to remember the bravery of the men who participated in what historians now call the greatest raid of all, stands in Falmouth, England, and reads Operation Chariot. From this harbor, 622 sailors and commandos set sail for the successful raid on Saint-Nazaire, 28th of March, 1942. 168 were killed. Five Victoria Crosses were awarded, dedicated to the memory of their comrades by the Saint-Nazaire Society. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We appreciate your sharing our show at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes, and we appreciate your follows at Twitter. At 1001 Podcast is the address there, at 1001 Podcast. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. So many more good stories ahead of us. And this is our story. <laughs>